This New America NYC event took place on June 22, 2017, and is titled, Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. This event is part of a social cinema screening series at Tumblr and features Brian Knappenberger, Elizabeth Spears, John Cook, Andrew McLaughlin, and Kai Wright. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's quite an ominous film. I'm Kai Wright um, from WNYC. I'm the host of the United States of Anxiety. I couldn't remember the name of my own show there for a second. <laughs> um, and I will quickly reintroduce the panel because we did this at the beginning of the film, but just so we all know who's here. And we're going to have a conversation, but we want you in the conversation too. So there's going to be... Uh, a neat little football-y kind of thing that's going to float around. It's actually a microphone. It looks like a toy, but it's an actual microphone. And we want you to use it and chime into the conversation. So be getting your questions ready. But first, our panelists, we, have the, we are honored to have the, the filmmaker himself, Brian Knappenberger, here. He's the director and executive producer of Everybody Speaks. <laughs> to my right is Andrew McLaughlin chairman of Access Now, a future tense fellow for New America, and the former deputy chief technology officer in the Obama administration. Um, so uh, we're going to have some, some real depth on the First Amendment here. We have Elizabeth Spears, who you saw in the movie, uh, a, a founding editor uh, of Gawker and a great many other digital properties since then, and is um, I, I'm particularly interested in, in hearing, though we may not get to it, uh, from her about Jared Kushner, <laughs> who, who worked for this man uh, at the New York Observer. And we have John Cook, who you also saw in the movie, who is another Gawker Media alum, former executive director, or executive editor, and is now the executive editor for special projects at Gizmodo Media. And we'll start with Brian. I guess my first question for you, Brian, is to kind of test the, the central idea in the film, right? So it's very clear that Peter Thiel is an asshole. And it's <laughs> very clear that, that Hulk Hogan is a buffoon as well as an asshole. But why is Hulk Hogan wrong? Why, why does Hulk Hogan not have a right to not have his sex tape out? Yeah. First of all, thank you, everybody, for coming. Yeah, I was interested in this story. I, I was captivated by the trial itself, and I thought it, the trial itself was really interesting. You know, uh, it's the first time a sex tape like this had ever gone to, gone to trial, uh, a case like this, and, uh, you know, you could tell right away. It was, so, it was tabloidy and it was salacious, but it, it also, there were some pretty big, you know, First Amendment versus privacy issues at stake. And um, I mean, to sort of uh, play off your question, I, I did have some sympathy for Hogan in this case. Um, you know, I thought this was uh, one of those cases that was, you know, there's an element of the people versus Larry Flint or something. I mean, it was, I didn't pick it because it was easy. I picked it because it was, I found it compelling because it was on the fringes of acceptability. And I think that's where a lot of the kind of interesting stuff happens. So, um, you know, but, but you know, it, it really was the, the $140 million verdict 
paired with that $50 million, that requirement to pay $50 million right up front, that was the death sentence to Gawker. And then the, the revelation that Peter Thiel was behind this, and a lot of the things that we'd kind of seen already suddenly seemed like a kind of kabuki theater or something. Um, that was the part that really switched it for me. So I think it, it went, it became a very different story at that point. I, I had some sympathy for Hogan's case, and I, and, uh, but I, I don't think, you know, I, I think it's Peter Thiel's money that, that caused the death sentence. I think without this, without it, there, it may have set, it probably settled. You were very clearly, I assume you were, you know, you were watching this trial, you were watching the, the, the campaign um, and kind of getting freaked out by the parallels between the two, it seems like. I mean, it's, it's, at what point were you like, this has got to be, I got to tell this story? Yeah, well, it was, yeah, you, right from the beginning, there were parallels between what was happening in this courtroom and this larger, bizarre elect, election cycle we were looking at. And if you kind of rewind, you know, this was the beginning of the kind of momentum of Trump. And, um, you know, and just in all sorts of very bizarre ways. I mean, the instant that, you know, what, what Leslie Savin talks about, the issue of puffery, uh, the kind of this notion that, you know, Hulk Hogan is one person and, and that kind of hinges on, on this, this notion and the, the way that paralleled Trump. Trump would say these awful things, misogynistic things, and then his surrogates on television would say, well, that was just him as a, a television personality. So I found like that, all that stuff was part of the documentary. Um, as it went along, and, and to some degree, the media was kind of on trial in the courtroom. Um, you know, the, the, the judge, Pamela Campbell, uh, made some remarks early on. A lot of people thought it was wildly inappropriate, but lamenting the state of online um, journalism. And so um, sort of tipping her, you know, inserting her own opinion into it. So, so these things were always connected to me. It got, it got very, you know, that was before Peter Thiel became, spoke at the RNC, gave money to Trump, became part of Trump's transition team. And um, we'd built a lot of that out. It got really weird the day after the election, though, because a lot of the stuff we'd... Because you were already well down the road in the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Trump was already in the film, but it was in a kind of cautionary way. Um, and then, you know, that day we went in and it was like, oh, shit, he's our president. And, and it felt like a film. The film was very different than the film I thought I was making, like, 24 hours before that. Has that, before we move on, I, that, based on that idea, I mean, has, so we're six months in, you know, ha, have you, the film certainly implies that there's a great deal of fear about what can happen under Trump. Uh, have you had your fears assuaged or your fears, um, because, you know, because part of it is that one of the ironic things to me is that we, it feels like we have a renaissance in speech. It, certainly in journalistic speech as a consequence of Trump. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's things to, that there, there's real threats. I think there's, there's real concerns right now. And, you know, if you look at the way Trump acted as a candidate and as president-elect, and then now it, nothing's changed. I mean, he's still attacking the press on a daily basis. Yesterday, you know, what did he say? The pre if the press was given a grade, we'd have to give it an F. I think we'd all agree in that. You, you know, the, so this is a part of who he is. Attack. It's also, by the way, a part of, he, he loves the adulation of he basks in the glow of coverage, so it's a, it's a strange thing. But in terms of um, threat, I mean, look, you know, uh, saying to to the press briefing, you know, having press briefings that you're not allowed to record or broadcast film or video, or you're not allowed to talk about the rules of the press briefing. I mean, it's getting very strange. Um, another element that worries me a little bit, if you look at the last couple of months, there's been a kind of wave of hostility in, in some ways to the press. I mean, you have the person that was arrested for asking Tom Price uh, a question, the Health and Human Services director. You have the, the reporter that was apparently pinned against a wall for asking a question at the Body FCC. Body slam, actually. 
body slam. Well, you know, then there's the body, that's, that's the FCC, but then there's a Greg Gianforte issue with body slam. You know, that's just, that's awful for that reporter doing exactly what he should have been doing, asking a question about healthcare of then congressional candidate. And even if he wasn't, that's it's still, you know, out of control. So it's still early on, but I, you know, I think, I, I do agree that there's a kind of glimmer of hope in, uh, in that the media is, and a lot of the press is being reminded of what they're there for. There is, there is some good reporting happening. On the uh, on the annihilation point, I love that shot towards the end where the Trump you're at the Trump rally and he's encouraged everyone to yell at turn around and yell at the media and the woman turns around and she starts yelling and she realizes she's on camera and starts to smile. <laughs> well, I, had, I talked to a friend a friend of mine who covered the Trump campaign and and he said that 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 happened to him that that people would yell and scream and then they would they would come up and say actually I really like NPR can I have a picture with you <laughs> can I get like, a copy of that it's a nice place to eat down the street uh, Andrew. There, I want to try to pull apart because there is a lot happening here and some of it's tumbling on top of each other in terms of sort of the culture war over media and what media is and the legal debate over the First Amendment. And this case has been large in our minds culturally over the First Amendment, but legally, what re relevance does this have in terms of actually impacting the First Amendment? Right, so um, it's an impossible law school exam question. You know what I mean? Like, like law, law professors spend a lot of time trying to architect crazy hypothetical scenarios to like unpack the issues. And like, this is way better than anything I've ever seen. It pulls you in multiple directions. Somebody whose privacy has legitimately been violated. A publication that legitimately holds the powerful and wealthy to account and a moment when those two things sort of like come head to head. So here's a way just to make some sense out of this kind of like cloud of issues. One set of issues is about the First Amendment itself, the substantive law of free speech in the country. Second set of issues is around the legal system and the mechanisms by which it allows people with money to repress others using the tools of the legal system. So let's take them, just take them in two different chunks. The most important thing to note about the First Amendment, I think, is that it is an extreme outlier globally. In basically no other country in the world would this even have been a close case. Privacy rights are uh, given dramatically more uh, sort of legal purchase in virtually every other country in the world. No other country in the world protects free speech as much as we do, with the possible exception of Sweden. But in even some important areas, the US is more hardcore. Here's the troubling part about that. So by, by the way, actually, let me get to the troubling part in a second. The reason that Hulk Hogan could even sue, though, is that we have one set of rules about free speech, and then another set of rules called tort law which basically allow you to recover money from people who hurt you. So in this case, one ruling said from a federal court, Gawker couldn't be compelled to take down the video because a federal court interpreting federal law as to free speech says no. I mean, like, they can post it. There isn't one of the exceptions of the First Amendment that applies here. We give very hardcore protection to journalistic institutions. All that aside, or I should say all that shows the general trend in the courts is to give greater protection to free speech than ever before, even in American history. On the other hand, we have this set of state laws that say that when somebody hurts you, you can recover. So the, 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 the critical legal decision that says when a state law can allow you to bankrupt somebody for you know things they say comes out of, interestingly, the civil rights movement. And so what would happen in the late 50s and early 60s was there was a raft of cases where um, the New York Times 
would report on civil rights protesters, Freedom Summer riders, Freedom Riders, and put Southern uh, white sheriffs in a negative light. And those sheriffs would then sue the New York Times in local courts where local juries would uh, uh, find that the sheriff had been libeled because of some completely minor factual dispute, you know, saying it was a Tuesday versus a Wednesday, saying that it was in this uh, part of town versus that one. And then they would do these punitive damages awards against the New York Times to try to bankrupt the paper. And so the Supreme Court, the Warren Court, stepped in and Justice Brennan, writing for uh, the court, articulated a rule, and it basically says that when you are a public figure, when you've put yourself forward into the public, you basically can never win a libel claim unless you can prove a really, really hard thing to prove, which is actual malice, which is even harder to prove than it sounds. But you basically have to prove that the journalists knowingly and intentionally, uh, with a desire to cause you harm, published falsehoods that you knew were falsehoods. So anyway, almost impossible to recover for libel. But this line between things that are public and people that are public and things that are private and people that are private still defines the basic boundary. It's important to note, however, that the kind of state tort law that Hulk Hogan sued under has never been tested by the Supreme Court, never gone up to the Supreme Court. We have no authoritative Supreme Court ruling on it. We have a set of rules around libel, but we don't have a set of rules around invasion of privacy, uh, at least not authoritative rules, a bunch of lower court decisions that kind of imply it. But anyway, here's the critical thing. If the courts can decide that something is on the private side of the line, that the news judgment was wrong, then they will allow recovery. If it's on the public side of the line, then they will not allow recovery. We can talk about the whole coking case. I just want to say the really dangerous thing that's been happening, though, from my perspective, is that the First Amendment has been turned into a all-purpose libertarian steamroller that you can use to invalidate any government regulation if you can show that it has some burden on speech. And there are many absurdities that we can go into, but even that substantive area of law, which is normally quite protective of free speech, has now been sort of like exploited by the right to try to invalidate the potential for government regulation if you can show that it has a speech effect. Anyway, I, I won't, I'll, I'll stop talking now, but the structure of the legal system is another thing we should talk about because it allows people with a lot of money to bankrupt people even when they have no claim. And if, I could, if I could just interject, I, mean, I yep. think the, the, the issues that were raised by the Hogan case are, are fascinating, and, but they were, they were a total distraction, right? Uh, it, it was a device. Uh, Meaning that, the sex and the racism and all of that. Even the fascinating legal issues, which, which have nothing to do with what happened to Gawker. What happened to Gawker is a billionaire decided to destroy us. And you can take your $10 million and you can throw it at the Hogan case or you can concoct another case. You're going to kill us if, you've got an, if you want to throw enough money at it. And that's what happened here. So, you know, what the instant issues presented by Hogan, which, as Andrew mentioned, there was a, a federal district court judge who found that the publication of the excerpt of the, the sex tape was newsworthy because Hogan had talked about his sex life, because he had addressed the existence of this tape. Nobody had seen the tape. Nobody knew if the tape was real. Hogan had talked about it. Hogan had denied it existed. Then he said maybe it did exist. Uh, and we were providing, uh, we were answering the question of did this tape exist by, by showing a, a very brief excerpt of it. A state appeals court came to the same conclusion in the course of the trial. But all of that is irrelevant to what 
happened, which is that Peter Thiel didn't like what we wrote about him 10 years before uh, and about his friends. And so he decided to set on a decade-long vindictive uh, you know, a vendetta to destroy us. He found that case. There were other cases he tried. He tried to fund an intern lawsuit. There, was, there were interns that, that claimed falsely that they should have been paid. There were uh, other cases for other stories that were uh, brought by the same lawyer, Charles Harder, that were also baseless. But so it, it, was, it was not the privacy issues presented by that case were not actually the cause of the demise of Gawker. Just really quickly to finish the thread on where we stand legally. So was I gather, did I gather from what you're saying that there are an increasing number of these state tort cases that are pushing the boundary in the way that John's talking about? I don't, and that's I, the legal threat right I now? Don't, I don't think we're, we, we may be maybe about to see an increase in the number. I think it's just been a steady stream for a long time that people have tried to use these state tort laws to go after journalists and publications. They, they normally fail. I would just say, if I can just be a little bit provocative, the argument on the other side that says that we don't have quite as much to be worried about as you just implied, I'm not taking a position here, but I want to throw it back at you, is that most publications, journalistic institutions, don't give an opponent like Peter Thiel as obvious a hook to hang them on as Gawker did. So um, he couldn't sue over the outing. I don't think anybody thought that the law would even have supported that, it would have gotten out and thrown out. But publishing a, to most Americans, I think, private sex tape, even of a public person, gave him that hook. What do you say to that? Uh, to, and to just add, put a little finer point on that is that, you know, is all truth telling the same? You know, I mean, if, if the idea, um, that that I heard you certainly arguing in the film, you know, is that we're telling truth about these awful, just saying mean things about bad people. You know, um, is that a universal idea? Is all truth telling the same, or is there some truth telling that's like kind of crappy truth? Well, maybe just I mean, for context too, that, that Forbes has done a lot of reporting on the number of cases that that Teal had tried to to go against Cocker. So there's a so uh, Charles Harder actually has there's a range of stuff. A lot of it has nothing to do with Hulk Hogan. Uh, one of them is a case called uh, uh, of this guy Shiva Ayudarai, who who believes, contends that he invented email. Uh, that's highly disputed. Lots of people have written articles saying no, he didn't. Uh, and so that that's one of the things he searched around for uh, for someone to take on the case. It didn't it didn't take. So uh, Forbes is actually pretty well in leaking uh, laying this out. So I don't know. Maybe you so want to take and, it from it's not. It's, sorry it's to by keep no asking means, you questions and not answering, but I think wanted, we want to get Elizabeth in just here to too, make so. the point. Yeah, that just, Hogan's not the only attempt here. I think that that's a very key point because it's, it's not like uh, Teal decided that he felt very strongly about the sex lives of professional wrestlers. You know, another thing is, is you know, there, there are people who, who work in a journalistic capacity to cover entertainment. So for them, Hulk Hogan is a perfectly acceptable target and, and protected by First Amendment boundaries. You know, the, what I think confuses people about Gawker sometimes is that it was essentially a general interest publication, but it covered a lot of celebrity. And it's easy to look at some of the more serious stories that Gawker did and say, well, they're completely undermined by the celebrity coverage. But that's because we're used to having our media in very neat categories. And you have to remember that two prior courts ruled that the Hogan story was newsworthy because Hogan himself had made it newsworthy. He had talked about his sex life on Howard Stern. 
you know, I, I was a, my first job after Gawker, I was an editor at New York Magazine. And a few weeks into my tenure there, the Paris Hilton sex tape came out. And it was very public, and I remember watching it in a conference room with a bunch of New York Mag journalists. And, and also, we were all getting tips that she had sold it for an X amount of money to tabloid. It's like, well, at what point, you know, there, there's, especially when you're talking about celebrities who have branded their sexuality as a piece of their corporate business, there are gray areas about what constitutes private life and public life. And there was a lot of gray area in the Gawker case about what, whether Hogan knew what he was doing, whether he was planning to commercialize it, you know, whether his, his you know, purported best friend was in on it. And you know, it wasn't as clear cut as I think it was painted, particularly in, in, in you know, five minute, here's, here's the two line summary of it brief. So. And I would say, you know, I, I take the point about if you're a publication that makes enemies, maybe you should take more care to not give your enemies a club with which to attack you. But the publications that don't give their enemies clubs with which to attack them are publications that don't make enemies, right? Like the ethos that motivated Gawker was that it was the place that was not frightened to, to do those stories and w would not look at a story whether it's uh, you know verifying the existence of Hulk Hogan's sex tape or whether it's talking about um, why Peter Thiel's uh, private life was shielded from public scrutiny in a very, very particular part of his private life or you know the failure of Peter Thiel's hedge fund. If Gawker had, had been a place that was cowed by those kinds of, of threats, I mean, we were, the, like, we were a place that if lawyers sent us letters, you know, lawyer letters, we would publish the lawyer letters. Like, that's what we did. Like, look at this asshole trying to get us to take this thing down. And we had the, the sort of uh, courage of our convictions in doing that because we knew that the things we were publishing were true. And there's never been a post or a case or there's never been any significant argument that any of the things that we published that were controversial were not true. But, so, but Elizabeth, to get you to sort of build on that idea, you guys are saying some of the same thing, but to, to really make the case then for, you know, it, there, there just is a qualitatively different mission right, to uh, I'm outing Sheldon Adelson's nefarious purposes, and I'm picking on some gross celebrity, right? Or is there not? Like, make the case for why there's not. There's Those not. The you know, Hulk Hogan is not some dude living in suburban Florida. He's a guy who has a multi-million dollar brand that he's built on this persona that he's created, part of which does include his sex life. Like, if you know anything about professional rest. I grew up in uh, rural Alabama in, a, in an area that would be uh, nearly identical to the, the jurisdiction that, that the Hogan case was tried in. And people there are giant wrestling fans. They know everything about these people's lives and, and the wrestlers go to great lengths to monetize it. So I, I think it's a little bit disingenuous to argue that when he so chooses, Hulk Hogan can go, actually for these five minutes, I'm Terry Bollea. I'm still gonna go on Howard Stern and talk about it. So, but it, you know, if your point is, are there other things that Gawker could be covering? And this, this is a specific argument that I well, not think- Not that other things that they could be covering, but that the same set of ethics apply to all. They're, they're yeah, no, I, I think they do. I, I think if you're talking about, um, because everything is, 
within the context of where it exists. So, you know, you, you would only cover Hulk Hogan within the context of an entertainment publication or a wrestling publication. You know, if you run a publication that's constantly talking about the war in Syria and you suddenly run a post about Hulk Hogan's sex life, that's going to be a little weird. And it's also going to be you're probably not journalistically defensible. But if part of what your publication exists to do is, for instance, cover entertainment figures, I, I think it would be hard to make an argument that, first of all, Hulk Hogan is not legitimately a public figure. And given his history of talking on the record about his sex life as Hulk Hogan, which seemingly on a factual basis has literally no differentiation from Terry Bollea's sex life, it, it seems like a spurious argument in the size of their relative penises, apparently. But, yeah. but it's just, the, it, again, the, the Hogan, Hogan was a device. It was a tool. And there would have been, there, there were, uh, there were uh, dozens of opportunities. Any, anyone who, any billionaire who decides to devote uh, unlimited legal resources to destroying a publication will have some success, right? Like, e even if we had never published the Hogan story, there would have been some other post that was sufficiently controversial or just a, a good way to maneuver something into a state court in Florida, right? Like Hogan, they tried in federal court twice, it got bounced, and then they moved it into state court. Like this was, there was a, a lot of money behind this case and you can take anything that any, you know, a, a great example is uh, the New York Post during the search for the Boston Bombers before we had identified the Sarnayev brothers, uh, the New York Post put on its front page a surveillance photo of two young men who were at the Boston Marathon wearing backpacks and said, wanted by the FBI, because the New York Post had come to believe that these two men were suspects in this bombing. They were not suspects in the bombing. The Post was wrong. And those two men sued the New York Post for libel and defamation for putting their pho photographs on the front page of the paper suggesting that they had killed three people at the Boston Marathon <coughs> with a bomb. The New York Post settled the case because they screwed up, it was a settlement. There's, maybe there's a case the New York Post could make that said, look, we weren't, we, it, was, it was a question mark after wanted or whatever. That's the way things work. When the New York Times published a story saying that this woman was sleeping with John McCain during the 2008 presidential election, that John McCain was sleeping with a, a lobbyist named Vicki Eisman, she sued the New York Times. They came to a settlement. You know, it would have been, if, if, if the people, if those two men who were featured on the front page of the New York Post had had the backing of a billionaire, they could have done a lot of damage to the New York Post. Maybe they find a way Maybe they, they get access to the New York Post insurance policy. Maybe they find a way to uh, adjust the claims to, to cleave off a portion of the insurance policy so they have to pay out of pocket. Maybe they maneuver it into a state court. Maybe they land a judge that happens to be a right-wing Christian nut job uh, who hates Jews. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, Is that liable? Uh, well, I didn't say, I'm not saying any particular, I'm not referring to any particular uh, jurist right now. <laughs> Law, uh, law, so, school, law school exam <laughs> hypothetical. So, but like, so it, what I'm saying is that, like, it, yes, the Hogan, Hogan I, I think it's interesting to talk about, but what happened here is that a billionaire didn't like what we published about him and his friends, and so he set out That's over a 10 year from all period of other... to, to destroy us. And, and, and the particular case that he landed is a fascinating case, but, you know, I don't know if this would have happened, if we would be, I don't know if the... You know, we'd be bankrupt, but Quickly. it would have been damage. So we're, we're 
gonna, we've got about 15 minutes, um, so if you've got your questions, get your hand up. We have the mic over here that will come to you. Meanwhile, you've been wanting to respond to what well, I just wanted John to call, call it one, so like, like a really interesting thing on the substantive side, which Elizabeth alluded to, which is Hulk Hogan and Donald Trump, their insane, to my mind, ability to get people to buy into the idea that they have a public character that gets to be the public and a private person that gets to be private. And so you get all the advantages of the public and all the advantages of the private, and some of the legal system is supposed to respect that. I think that's nuts. What I wanted to say, though, is that one of the things we should, that you know, John keeps sort of pushing on, and he's right to do so, we have a legal system that we have treated largely as kind of like the domain of like a priesthood of lawyers and judges, and the public is very inadequately involved, I think, in trying to reform it. And I'm not even talking about the criminal side, which is nuts for its own reasons, but on the civil side, over and over and over again, for the last sort of, let's say, since the early 70s, the broad direction of change in the legal system under right-wing judges and right-wing congresses and so forth has been to eliminate the ability of the legal system to take account of differences in wealth and power. And we see it in so many different cases. But what we're talking about here is, for example, there was a long-time rule that said, it was, it's called the rule against champerty, and there's a similar rule against maintenance. It was a long-time rule that said, nobody can pay for my lawsuit against you. And the rule was designed so that basically like rich people couldn't use opportunistic plaintiffs and go like bankrupting people. But then it became, there became a concern that People without money to pay for legal expenses up front couldn't get access to the legal system, so it eroded in the form of contingency fees. So anyway, that rule is basically like disappeared now, and lawyers can take cases on contingency fees. There's even a whole industry of litigation finance, massive $100 million plus funds that will fund litigation. Maintenance was the idea that um, you couldn't, uh, with the rule against maintenance, that you couldn't fund a suit just for the hell of it. Well, foundations wanted to be able to fund lawsuits for civil rights purposes and fund the legal expenses of plaintiffs. So anyway, for per perfectly good reasons, we got rid of that. The result, though, has been that as we've gutted the availability of meaningful finance opportunities outside of personal injury for, for example, civil rights plaintiffs or people that have been injured in the workplace and so forth, the whole system has said basically, oh, here's where I was going there. Justice Cardozo, who was the kind of like leading legal justice in the New York court, said, well, we should just have a rule that says like, you can't use champerty to oppress people, you can use it for the weak <laughs> to take advantage of the legal system. Like he thought that was perfectly sensible. But anyway, the Bar Association, all of the other kind of legal institutions have not taken that view. And they've said, no, there has to be the same rule for everybody. So now other people can pay for your litigation, other people can um, uh, finance your lawsuits. Anyway, that plus the fact that we have this completely open-ended system of discovery, which allows you know years of ruthless digging around just into your life, up, just to run up bills, whatever. Yeah. And our legal system is incredibly liberal on discovery. It's like go find the information, and then if you have to, you can file a motion with a judge to suppress it. But like the absolute bias is like disclosure, uncover, recovery. Anyway, all of these things add up to a legal system which, if any one of us here is unfortunate enough to get sued, is deeply, deeply scary. You will almost never stand any chance of recovering any of your legal fees, even if you win. Awesome. And it's, a, it's, in, in, it's in a ton of ways, it's like a disgrace, and this case brings to light why it's bad for journalism, but it's bad for everybody. Okay, let's, let's get to some questions. 
Tyler's choice here. That thing's amazing. That is an actual microphone. Yes. I have to position on my hand. This is good. So this is, this is fascinating slash absurd. Uh, I wanted to play out one thing hypothetically, kind of in a legal context. And this was the big elephant in the room that Andrew started talking about. Uh, so the convergence of kind of campaign finance and effectively infringement on speech, if there were to be legislation that kind of would somehow mitigate, prevent, restrict some of these kind of secret financings of court cases, you'd have this weird place where at some point down the road, you'd have corporations and private individuals acting as these money engines behind the scene. And it just becomes more and more of this kind of shadow industry that can power many, many more. I'm getting there. All right, all right. I, I'm the moderator here. <laughs> but I agree. I, Get to the question. Yeah. So I was wondering, could Andrew, especially, could kind of play that out in five or 10 years if some of these issues get elevated in the courts and go well, let me, let me just say very quickly, um, so uh, campaign finance is an area where what I mentioned earlier has been happening, which is to say the Supreme Court takes the First Amendment and flattens any potential for regulation. They basically said, like, everybody has speech rights in elections. You, it's really publicly important that people be able to speak, and so nobody can regulate campaign finance. We have almost no regulations left that are permissible under the First Amendment. And yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's like sort of like where it's playing out in my, in my mind. Okay, this side of the room. Hi. My question is about the case itself. And um, if he was making the argument that Terry Bollea was a completely separate person from Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan was actually this character and that he, as Terry Bollea, suffered all of this damage to himself, how come it couldn't sort of be flipped on him that the post was about Hulk Hogan and the entire article was I don't was understand that either, actually. I have that same about question. Hulk Hogan. How, how is yeah. that? It, does anyone understand? I'll give the non because it wasn't because it no, was in a in a, in a bizarro world funhouse of nightmarish injustice. Like <laughs> there was not this was not a. I mean, the, the judge in this case was a maniac who was out. Like there's, I mean, the, the judge in this case uh, is was is one of the most overturned uh, is the most overturned judge in her district in Florida. One of her earlier cases was a murder case. And one of the outcomes of this for me is like, imagine the people who had like real, like imagine going up with this like a, a foreclosure issue in front of this woman. Uh, one of the cases was a murder case where uh, a juror had realized after the case started, uh, it was a murder case, that a detective testifies against the uh, accused and a juror realizes that that detective had been the teacher in an online forensics course that this juror had taken. And the juror says, sends a note to the judge and says, I just realized this detective was my teacher. I don't know if you need to know that or if that like, it, you know, is an issue. The, there's, a, there's an alternate juror in the case, so they can just bounce that juror if they want. And the judge says, no, no, no it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's fine. This is your teacher is, your professor is testifying against the accused. And the, the guy's convicted. And, and that gets overturned on appeal, thank God. But this is, that's the, the so, anyway, that's. Is it just the, the that, judge? Is it just in the, the jury? The jury no, but, is. But did the Gawker, also, the case, there, did the Gawker a, lawyers, though, did they, essentially, I think what you're doing is why, didn't they make the case, okay, if there's the separation between Hulk Hogan and Well, Terrible but the Leo, answer, the, the, no, the answer, though, is that the video was not of Hulk Hogan. 
They called it Hulk Hogan in the text, but he wasn't in costume. He wasn't in character in that video. That that argument. But by his won. own definition, but he's Hulk Hogan when he leaves the, his front door. They would have fought about that. I don't know. But then he got into a private bedroom, and then maybe he's not Hulk Hogan. Right. Right. My point was simply this: there's. I'll just say it's idiots. There isn't a. Shred. It was a room full of idiots. Is why it was a room full of idiots, including the jury. That's why it worked. So right, well, there isn't a shred of doubt. There's no. There isn't a shred of doubt in my mind that this case would not have been overturned on appeal. Right, there, it might not have been the state appeals court because it's who knows what it's like. But like at some point, this case would have been reversed. There's the the, the amount of the verdict was insane. Uh, I don't have any doubt that it would have been reduced. I don't think it ever should have gone to trial. You know, any sane legal system would have taken care of it. But now we get to the crux of John's point, which is that they had to go bankrupt because the legal system that we have requires a fifty million dollar bond just to file the appeal and get the thing reviewed. So I mean, like that's insane. Like there's so many things that are effed up about the legal system that come to, <coughs> that come to roost in this case. Uh, a very poorly qualified and highly biased judge. That's an allegation. I think it's probably true, but you know, we'll call it an allegation. A jury system that, that has very little boundary around it uh, legally. Um, a discovery system that allows you to bankrupt people en route to getting to trial. A trial that happened that should have been. And we had, there's just so many things that are messed up that we could like talk about. That's one of them. We're we're very short on time, Elizabeth, and then I want to ask you guys something else. One point that I wanted to make because it hasn't come up yet. You know, I think one of the most important things about this documentary and the entire case is what the implications are for individual journalists. Because one thing that Teal managed to do was to extract AJ Delario and specific journalists from Gawker's umbrella insurance, and the implications that has for First Amendment. Any incentive that anybody has to go into this kind of you know, journalistic work, it, it really does affect things. I'm trying to recruit journalists now for a venture, and, and I get asked questions that I was not asked before the Gawker trial about like indemnification and the extent to which their media organization can protect them. And it's a reasonable question. You know, that sets some very bad precedents. And I think because the, the profile of the Gawker case in general was so high, those things are not really adequately discussed, but that, that's another thing that... Well, you brilliantly in. got to where I want to yeah. go with this. Is in, so as people who are practicing this, so you're talking about now the individual journalists and how that sort of changes this case and the whole era has changed the way we think about uh, our work. What about also the business models? I mean, do you, has this... Have you seen this echo into um, how people think about their media companies um, particularly digital properties that might be more aggressive. Do you see that showing up yet? I think, well, when I'm fundraising, you know, one of the first things that I tell people that I'm pitching to is, is and I always say it in, in a softer and more diplomatic way, but we're probably going to get sued. We need general counsel on day one, and this is going to be more expensive than you think. And, and I, I view that as partly a legacy of this case because people are very aware of it. You know, they, How they do aren't, people react to that? Uh, well, I think the people who have said yes to me understand it. <laughs> uh, the people who have said no, you know, sometimes that's why. You know, they, they, they might not even understand the nuances of the case or care about it, but they, they actually see that it is risky to do an indie media property without a, much of a safety net or, or without very, very deep pockets. Because, you know, Nick Denton was, was by anybody's standards, I would say wealthy, but not to the extent that Peter Thiel was. And if your strategy is to drag your enemy through the judicial system repeatedly until they're broke, that's a viable strategy. <laughs> you 
if you're really determined and you're going to spend 10 years on it. So people think about that, you know, and, and you, you need funders who are willing to sort of understand those risks and take them. John, what about from your vantage? Does, does, have you seen this change the way either individual journalists are thinking, particularly in the digital space, or business decisions? I mean, absolutely. We, just so you understand how this affected us on the individual level, all, once Gawker was bankrupt, Gawker, the entity that had indemnified all of us individually, um, uh, once it was bankrupt, we, we actually had to file proofs of claim against the estate. We had to hire our own lawyers. We had, I was emailing, you know, like all of the, everybody at Gawker who wanted to join in and, and we were like pooling our money to come up with a $3,000 retainer uh, for a law firm to file proofs of claim for 65 of us who chose to so that if we got sued, because the other thing to keep in mind here is there's, there's, there's the Hogan case, there's Shiva Ayadurai, another uh, Charles Harder client who claims falsely to have invented email. There's a woman named Ashley Terrell um, who was the subject of a story uh, on Gawker. They, they, three, those three lawsuits were filed by Charles Harder. There were eight, maybe 10, maybe as many as a dozen other letters, that, threatening letters that Charles Harder wrote uh, about other stories. So, and when the, when we get those letters, the reporters who, whose stories are at issue are notified. So that's terrifying. You get a letter from this guy that you just watched destroy AJ Delario. And now he's sending you a letter saying, I'm coming after you next. Um, it was terrifying. So we had to, you know, lawyer up to prevail upon the bankruptcy court to ensure that Gawker, the estate of Gawker, the bankrupt zombie entity would still indemnify us uh, if we were uh, sued, if Peter Thiel didn't stop. I don't know if he's gonna stop. There was a period where I, we don't know, he could keep going. So yeah, it, 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 you know, I remember when I learned about indemnification as a young <laughs> journalist, and I was like, awesome. Like, fuck, I don't give a shit. This is great. You know, I do my stories and I don't have to worry. You know, this is awesome. It's never going to touch me. Uh, not like I can write whatever I want, but I can do my stories without fear. And now I know that, like, indemnifi like I had an indemnification agreement with Gawker. It didn't, you know, I was personally sued in two cases. And I was at the point where I'm, like, wondering, should we be shifting assets into my wife's name? You know, like, I don't know what's going to happen here. And that's a, that's a terrifying, and, and I knew I was right. And I didn't even have, to have anything to worry about, but none of that mattered because I could have been in a position where Gawker is bankrupt, it throws me out the window, and so uh, who's gonna pay for these lawyers? Someone has to. You learned we, fear. We, you, Brian, you yeah. get the last word. The last word. Yes. <laughs> I was just gonna add something small to that. The, we were in some, one of the, some of the screenings that we've done with the film. We were in Berkeley at, um, at the Logan Symposium with um, Lowell Bergman, the sort of famous uh, 60 Minutes producer, and he teaches a class in Berkeley. And uh, he told me that actually now he's having his, uh, as a part of the last assignment of the class, he's having his students sued. So he's, uh, he's actually wow. having them. Uh, wow. They're going through the motions where they're uh, essentially suing each other and putting each other on the spot, that kind of thing. This is a perverse world. <laughs> Brian Knappenberger, John Cook, Elizabeth Spears, Andrew McLaughlin. Thank you, guys. Thank you Thank all. You Thank you guys for joining us. Good night. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. 
To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.